0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, What happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 33, November 1st through November 7th, 1861. Last week, we mentioned a brief skirmish in Springfield, Missouri, as well as had a little more of an in depth rundown of the Mexican American War. So now, when I say that, Ulysses S. Grant was attached to General Zachary Taylor or that Jefferson Davis served at Monterey or Buena Vista, that will all make, at least hopefully, a little bit more sense. Speaking of Grant, we have to fight his first battle of the war this week. But before we do that, we do need to mention the official switch in command for the Union Army. Up until this point, And I think it is hard to believe we have gone through 33 episodes with one overall commander of the federal forces. He has been at the forefront of the story of America for quite some time. This man, as we well know, is Winfield Scott. But now, we must say goodbye to old fuss and feathers. The fiery general was not content with accepting a diminishing role in military planning. There was some blame that was shifted his way after First Bull Run. So, feeling the pressure, Scott would resign in October and retire from the Army. November would see George B. McCullen officially take over his role. Scott had advised Lincoln that Henry Halleck should be his replacement, advice that will be heeded after McCullen's star fades. As already mentioned, Grant will adopt a lot of the outline of the Anaconda Plan toward the end of the war. I know we will be talking about the Trent Affair next week, but Scott will actually help in defusing that situation, displaying his already mentioned adept negotiation skills. So even though he is gone, we can still see Winfield Scott's stamp on future events. Winfield, although in poor health, will be able to see out the end of the war as well, eventually dying at West Point in 1866. I think it is not a surprise if you have heard me talk about Winfield Scott to know that I think he has a very important role in our story, although he is not going to be a forefront figure for for much of the rest of our time just look at the longevity of his career. It is impressive, and I think, I hope you may have learned a little more about this less talked about figure in American history. And let's not knock the fact that he does survive all the way to 1866. That's pretty impressive considering uh, he did have these health issues here in 1861, so he outlives at least a lot of the officers that are far younger than him in the war. We can check back in on the strategic situation in Kentucky before we get going with Grant's first battle. Remember, the Confederacy had a little false start into the state and seized some strategic positioning when it came to the Mississippi River. Specifically, Leonidas Polk had moved into Columbus, a place with high bluffs that could control the traffic on the brown water below. The fort that Polk constructed there, he called the Gibraltar of the West. Gibraltar, if you are unaware, is on the very tip of uh, the Spanish peninsula. So it blocks off the Mediterranean from the open Atlantic. So that's uh, that's why he gave it that name there. And it was a formidable position. Furthermore, I think maybe I mentioned this it is not far from cairo illinois the main base of union troops or paducah kentucky which we also talked about the confederates had a couple thousand men around columbus which would be a problem for the new commander in southeast missouri louis c s grant john c fremont had named grant to this position it would also be the pathfinder who would be concerned with potential troop movements into Arkansas. So, he would order Grant to move toward Columbus in an effort to keep the rebels in that vicinity. Remember, those troops at this point, should they be shifted to Arkansas, might have the potential to combine with the Missouri State troops and make a more formidable opponent for Fremont as he continues his trek south. These gains, unfortunately, would be undone when he gets relieved of Missouri and David Hunter takes over, sort of backtracks a little bit in terms of progress, but at least for right now, he's sort of thinking long-term into who's going to oppose him in not only the state of Missouri, but also a potential invasion of Arkansas. So Grant would move two brigades of troops supported by gunboats south. Let's talk about the troops on both sides. I think one of the more important figures would be one of Grant's brigade commanders, John Alexander McClernand. McClernand is a former Democrat and definitely one of those political generals we've mentioned in the past. He was a supporter of Stephen A. Douglas and certainly no friend of Abraham Lincoln. At the start of the war, Lincoln would award a commission to the Kentucky-born Illinois congressman. McClarnon would go on to have a more intense rivalry with Louis C. S. Grant. He would spread rumors about Grant's drinking habit, something that would plague Ulysses S. Grant for you know, at least for a couple of years here to come. MacLarnan was also accused of incompetence by both Sherman and David Dixon Porter, so not a very good group of men to have on your bad side. Eventually, events will come to a head outside of Vicksburg in 1863, but I will save those events for another time. Also under the command of Grant is Napoleon Bonaparte Buford, also originally from Kentucky. It is a nice name for sure, which is most of the reason why I wanted to mention him, but he will play a role in the seizing of Island Number 10. Also, he's the cousin of John Buford, one of my favorite figures from the Battle of Gettysburg, but I'm getting all kinds ahead of myself. Also in Grant's Department of Southeastern Missouri is John Blackjack Logan. He's a political general, but probably one of the more successful. The nickname Blackjack came from his black hair and mustache. Logan would serve in several campaigns during the war, including the Vicksburg Campaign and Atlanta. Grant came very close during the war, to replacing George Thomas with Logan in the defense of Nashville. Grant will move his forces and take advantage of a camp the Confederates had made at a place called Belmont. Now this would technically be going beyond his orders from Fremont, who wanted to just keep the Confederates wary of the Union presence. Grant was acting on intelligence that the Confederates were sending troops to aid in attacks on Missouri Unionists. You remember M. Jeff Thompson and his Swamp Rats. Well, this would be sort of the support they're giving to raid into Missouri. We've already sort of started this bushwhacking trend that's going to continue throughout the war. A camp across the river from Columbus at Belmont seemed like a good place to strike in order to keep the enemy from achieving this goal. Belmont was an old ferry station that sported a few small buildings. Troops under the command of Gideon Pellow would occupy this area. All in all, the strengths of Pellows and Grant's forces were relatively equal. Union troops were landed upriver and moved through thick brush toward the rebels. Hello, would deploy his men in an open field to face Grant, but the cover provided by the trees and brush proved to be the undoing of the Confederates. A bayonet charge from the Confederates seemed like a momentum swing, but the Union forces were able to regroup in the trees and repulse the assault. Running low on ammunition, the rebels were forced to withdraw. The green nature of both sides would show in this engagement. Union troops would push the enemy through the southern camp, where they would stop to loot, becoming disorderly. To them, it seemed that once the stars and stripes were raised over the tents, that meant well-deserved spoils of war. The Confederates, on the other hand, did not think that the battle was over. General Polk would send reinforcements under Benjamin F. Cheatham Frank Cheatham, across the river. Cheatham was born in Tennessee and had served in a volunteer regiment from that state in the Mexican-American War. Afterwards, he went to California in an attempt to make a fortune, leaving that state to serve in the Confederacy. Cheatham will be with our events in the West essentially all the way until the end, After the war, he will go on to become superintendent of prisons in Tennessee. I think also there is a great sort of rundown of Cheatham. Cheatham is very highly thought of by uh, Sam Watkins in his memoir, Company H. So that is on the Patreon feed once again. Shameless plug for that. If you wanted to hear more about Watkins' thoughts and I think subsequently the thoughts of the common soldier, and check out the Patreon feed. Just to shoehorn into this episode, I think it is also high time I mention Polk's superior, Albert Sidney Johnson. Johnson was originally from Kentucky and attended West Point before serving in the Black Hawk War. Johnson would actually go on to make his name in Texas, though, serving in the Revolutionary Army. Eventually, He actually became the highest-ranking general in the Revolutionary Army, the Republic of Texas Army. He would then go on to be the Secretary of War in the Republic of Texas and serve in the Mexican-American War at the head of a Texas volunteer unit. After the war, he moved back into the U.S. Army, where he served until Texas seceded from the Union. Johnson sort of takes on Texas as his adopted home state, although being from Kentucky... So this is why he chooses to join the Confederate Army. He probably would not have joined had Texas remained in the Union, which is sort of an interesting note. Davis places a lot of trust in Johnson, who was regarded as one of the better assets the Confederates had. The rebel president was quoted to having said, if Johnson is not a general, then we have no general. I think this is also illustrated in the personal letters that Davis sends to Johnson. Johnson is one of his closest friends, uh, at least in the Confederate Army. So, sort of heaped a lot of pressure upon him. So, we were going to see this as he faces off against Grant in April of 1862, how that sort of uh, comes to a head. Anyway, Cheatham would put pressure on the disorganized Union troops. Grant would display his usual calm when placed under fire. There are a lot of great quotes associated with Grant, one of my favorites being his berating of officers in the East about how they thought Lee would attack on both flanks and show up in the rear of the army because they were so fearful of the Confederate general. This time, he is quoted as having said, we must cut our way out as we cut our way in. Facing superior numbers, the Union troops would withdraw back to the riverboats. The last Northerner to board was Grant himself. In a famous incident, his horse jumps up onto the game plank at the last instant. Grant was a good horseman, as noted during his time at West Point. In another famous incident, Confederates began firing on the riverboat, and Grant went to observe the firefight. Upon his return to his cabin, there was a bullet hole where he had been resting in his quarters. So, we have two very close calls for Grant. Overall, the battle was inconclusive. Both sides suffered around 600 total casualties, the Confederates slightly worse off. Both sides would claim victory. The Confederates had driven the enemy back while the Union had kept their enemy occupied. Grant would be criticized for the seemingly useless action by some of the newspapers in the North. Even this early, he will start to acquire his reputation as a butcher. His aggressive action did put him on the radar of President Lincoln, who would not forget the general several years later. Now, we can head over to see how the U.S. Navy will continue to have success that, so far, overall has eluded the Union armies on the battlefield. When we last talked about the Navy, we mentioned the successful capture of Hatteras Island. We have also been mentioning the strategy of blockading the southern ports. Originally, if you recall, there were only two squadrons tasked with this job, which was not going to work if the blockade plan was going to come to fruition. The U.S. Navy would create a blockade strategy board, which would then develop a plan to create four squadrons, each with the base of a captured southern port. This would make the job far easier. Just a quick aside. This board was also known as the DuPont board. Why? Because it was headed by one Samuel Francis DuPont. DuPont was born in New Jersey in 1803 to French immigrant parents his uncle would found the company that will evolve into the DuPont we know today. In 1815, Samuel was serving as a midshipman in the U.S. Navy. He would be placed aboard several ships before commanding a vessel in the Mexican-American War. He actually performs well along the Californian coast during that conflict. After the war, he focuses his efforts on modernizing the U.S. Navy. When the war starts, he will become the commander of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. So step one in the plan was to identify potential ports that could be used as bases of operation. Port Royal, South Carolina, was seen as one of these locations as it was a deeper water port city in between Charleston and Savannah. Both of these major cities are obviously on the hit list. DuPont would put together a fleet of over 70 ships and combine efforts with the U.S. Army to create a landing force. Facing off against the expedition would be two Confederate forts that would protect the Sound, Fort Walker and Fort Beauregard. Some 3,000 Confederates would man the two forts with 44 guns between them. These men were actually technically under the command of Robert E. Lee, whom I mentioned had relocated after Cheat Mountain. This is where he gets the nickname King of Spades from his goal to bolster the coastal defenses. The Confederate government is aware that there will be potential targets along the coast, so sending the engineer Robert E. Lee seems like a good move. The expedition was struck with misfortune in the form of a storm that scattered several vessels en route to South Carolina. A handful of ships needed to return to friendly ports for repair. Even more concerned was that several of the infantrymen would lose their weapons in the choppy water. This could come into play with potential landing operations. Commanding the infantry was a general, no, not that one, Sherman, who would develop a reputation as well being difficult. Does not work well with others would be probably listed on his performance review. Thomas W. Sherman had served in the Mexican-American War at Buena Vista. This Sherman has been mistaken as a relative of William T., but they were not actually related, at least not closely. Thomas W. would refuse to land his troops due to the lack of arms and the fact that the landing craft and equipment were lost in the storm. It would be up to the Navy again. If you recall, at Hatteras, there had been issues with Ben Butler's men as well. As the Union ships came into range of Port Royal, they would begin feeling out the enemy positions. Briefly, the Confederates attempted to sally out with gunboats, but the strength of the U.S. Navy sent them back to safety. The scattering of the Union vessels during the storm and their mixed times of arrival made for an issue for how to proceed. On November 6th, a plan was hatched by Charles Henry Davis for how to attack. Davis would go on to become the commander of gunboats on the Mississippi. Prior to the war, he had served in the U.S. Navy and been involved in mediating an ending to William Walker's first filibuster expedition. You remember because the second one does not turn out to be a healthy visit to Central America for William Davis took a page out of the book of Stringham and Cape Hatteras. The ships would form an elliptical, and the constant fire on the two forts would continue while also making it difficult for any kind of return fire. DuPont agreed, and on November 7th, the squadron was set up for the assault. Nine warships and five gunboats began the bombardment of Fort Walker in the morning and continued with the general opening of fire on both positions. Some of the ships would fall out of the elliptical and take up better positions to continue a bombardment of the Confederate forts. After this sustained fire, the Confederates began evacuating Fort Walker. Ammunition was running low and several of the guns were knocked out. Once Fort Walker was occupied and the Stars and Stripes raised over the works, Fort Beauregard was threatened with being cut off. Confederate forces would withdraw and leave Port Royal to the northern victors. Robert E. Lee would pull forces back from the coast to defend more inland positions, especially a key railway that connected Savannah and Charleston. Casualties were 31 for the Union and 63 for the Confederates. There's a great significance with the capture of Port Royal. As mentioned, it gives the Union Navy a base to build off their blockade from. Port Royal would also become a key recruiting station for colored troops during the war. There would be several units of South Carolina regiments made up of former slaves. This is where David Hunter shows up. And much like John C. Fremont, decides to have his own Emancipation Proclamation. A fun fact about the Battle of Port Royal is that there was quite literally a brother-against-brother scenario. It's something that is often used to describe the Civil War, but we have a quite literal case here. Percival Drayton was a commander in the U.S. Navy, while Thomas Drayton commanded Confederate forces in part of the coastal defense. careers would end up very differently for the brothers percival continues to be involved in naval operations throughout the war and is the recipient of the famous line damn the torpedoes full speed ahead thomas will be disappointed in the army of northern virginia and be shipped out west toward obscurity we can pause it there we got to fight ulysses s grant's first battle of the war which sort of mirrors Robert E. Lee's first battle in that it was a little bit of a misstep. Port Royal also shows that in 1861, the bright spot for the North is definitely the Navy. Next week, we will jump into the Trent Affair, an event that will bring the British the closest they will ever come to being involved officially in the war. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.